Welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And in this monthly roundup, we're going to have a chat through the posts from the blog site for March 2018. We're still catching up a little bit after that winter, but we're getting there slowly, Simon. We are. And there's quite a lot going on in March. We've got a lot of blog posts on the site. So please visit there and have a look, see what's, um, see what's been happening. Quite a lot of evidence-based medicine as well. Now, before we get there, we'd just like to very briefly remind you of the exciting things we've got coming up later this year, specifically St. Emlyn's Live and the teaching course in Manchester. You're probably just about to think about your study leave for the next 12 months or so. And if you've got a bit of spare cash and time, please do consider both these courses. We're putting a lot of effort into making these the best they can be and really hopeful that this would be an excellent way to spend both your time and your money. I think it's going to be a lot of fun in October in Manchester, where, as we know, the sun always shines sort of psychologically and philosophically if not actually so please have a look at the website there's more details there and we'd be really hopeful that you get a lot out of those and we'd love to see you and meet you in person there's only so much of a relationship you can have over a computer as many of us have found out no i can't say that (laughs) anyway let's move on to march so simon there's some really good evidence-based medicine in here and a couple of papers focusing a lot on a topic that seems to cause a lot of anxiety, which IV fluid we tend to give when we need to resuscitate critically ill patients. This has been going on for quite a while, hasn't it? And you do find when you go into departments or even departments within the same hospital, you can find very different views about those people who think that normal saline is fine versus those people who are absolutely evangelical about the fact that we must give balanced fluids such as Hartman's or Plasmalite. And I work in several different departments and actually there's different feelings even within the same organization. I find that quite difficult. And when you look back at it, the actual evidence for whether or not normal saline is harmful versus balanced solutions are better, do they cause kidney problems, do they cause uh, hypochromic acidosis or not, there's lots of opinion out there. There's relatively little evidence. There was a split trial that came out a few years ago from our colleagues uh, down under, which suggested that they couldn't identify a difference in the size of the trial at that time. And there are some big trials in progress at the moment on this. But we've got maybe a bit of a sneak peek into this with two trials which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at whether or not patients who got balanced crystalloid or got saline in critically ill patients and then in emergency department patients who've been admitted through to the wards. So there's two papers. We put it up as two blogs because it's kind of a slightly different thing. But essentially... This is a, it's quite nice, it's a cluster randomised trial. So the unit gets randomised to whether they give crystalloid or plasmalite, uh, crystalloid or balanced solutions. In this case, it was uh, lactated ringers or plasmalite. And they do that for a period of time and then it crosses over. So you do the same thing for a period of time rather than just randomising each individual patient. And these are big studies, you know, there's 15,000 plus in each of these studies. And cut to the chase, it's interesting. There's a number of concerns about it. And there's people like Paul Young, who is one of the authors of the split trial, who raised some concerns about the methodology. But the bottom line is that the mortality appears to be different. And the main outcome measure for this trial, which was major kidney events in the critical care group, was different. Not a huge difference, 14.3% versus 15.4%, but you know enough to make a difference. And if you extrapolate that across the global intensive care population, it could be really important. But is this absolutely definitive? Maybe not in the ICU patients. So how does this actually affect what you do in the emergency department? So I mean, has it made any difference to how you practice? 
I think over the last few years, I've become much more confident and much more frequently using balanced solutions. The balanced solution that we use is Hartman's in adults, plasma light in children. There's no particular reason on age groups there. It just happens to be what we have in those two different departments. But I've always felt that physiologically, pathophysiologically, the balanced solutions make more sense. We do know that if you give saline, you do get a hypochloromic acidosis, although we don't definitively know how important that is. But I've also, I've always felt that you've got a good pathophysiological argument. We didn't have any evidence in the other direction, so it seemed to make sense. So this probably isn't going to change what I do because both of these trials, both in the ward-based patients who come through the ED and on the ICU patients, there was what looks to be a potential benefit in giving the balanced crystalloids. Where I work, we have well two different approaches, really. One is in our neurointensive care unit where they really want to use saline. And if I can point you towards a podcast that we did a little while ago now with John Hell, who's a consultant in neurointensive care at Southampton, it's on the feed. You'll be able to find it. It's really, really good. Uh, that's not the part I was doing. It was John. He was excellent. And he explains really coherently why they believe that normal saline is right for their patients with head injury and specific neurological problems. Otherwise, I tend to just go to Hartman's. For me, it's about making the decision about giving the right amount of fluid and sometimes just giving some fluid. I've always said to our new doctors when they're starting that there's really only four treatments we give in emergency medicine. One is oxygen, i.e. make sure they've got an airway and they can breathe. Another one is analgesia, and we talk about that all the time. No patient in our department should have pain. Antibiotics, well, that's key with sepsis. We want to make sure we get the right antibiotic in early. And the last one is fluids. Emergency medicine attracts people like me uh, because it's can be quite straightforward. Four treatments is all you need to remember. So say, fluids is one of those things where just think about giving it and give some in preferably the right amount of volume. When it comes to which one, I, I struggle to have a really strong feeling about it for that first part of the resuscitation. But I'm not an intensive care doctor. I'm a, well, relatively simple emergency physician. So I just want to make sure I get the patient something to get them feeling a bit better. Yeah. And in the emergency department patients, so that the second trial, they didn't really find much in the way of mortality difference, but they found sort of differences in the secondary outcomes. And one of the controversies that has been going on with both of these trials is people interpreting the secondary outcomes in lots of different ways. So it is a paper that you need to read for yourself. There's not the massive difference between these two therapies, which you sometimes feel would be the case speaking to people who have very strong views on the subject. That hasn't come through. So I will be looking with with anticipation about these trials which are coming out of the antipodes on the randomized control trial of patients coming through with sepsis and I think in emergency department patients as well. We do need to have the evidence, but maybe it's not as important as you think. Maybe it is more about what you say. They need fluid. And if they've got working kidneys, they'll adjust. If they haven't got working kidneys, well, life is always more complex under those circumstances and you need to tailor. I sometimes find that the strength of a person's views about a particular treatment are inversely proportional to the evidence that says you should use it. So people can be passionate about these things, but often when you then dig deeper, it's not that straightforward. It's not that clear. Most of the treatments we know are good and work. Everyone accepts. When there's this real dichotomy of opinion, then that's usually where the evidence isn't that great. And then it does come down to a little bit of all those things that make us the doctors that we are, whether that's the influences we had when we were training, the units we've worked on, our beliefs about how the body works and how resuscitation works. All of those things meld into one. 
But that's the bit that makes medicine an art and not just a science. And I would hate for us to get rid of the art part. I would agree entirely. So we've talked a little bit there about IV fluids. It's an important thing. Please remember to give some if your patient needs it. And it probably doesn't matter particularly which one you choose. And then there was a couple of other posts in March talking a little bit about the teaching course in Cape Town. Yeah, so the teaching course went really well in Cape Town and that's the one that we're going to be doing with the teaching co-op later this year. So come along to that. If you want to get a heads up and see what it's all about, check the blog post out. So as with all courses, if you're going to spend your money and, and we don't have that much money to spend us uh, on our study, then if you know that the course has been delivered well and delivered effectively, it probably gives you some more confidence to punt on having a go yourself. And so the South African course went well. Unfortunately, I couldn't be there, but it sounds like it was a, a really good experience and lots was learned by all those who were there. And whilst we're talking about South Africa, there's a great post from a guy called Chris Weirmouth who I met last in Johannesburg, who has spent some time, as a UK trainee, who spent some time working out in South Africa. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before, about people working in some of the larger hospitals like Kailicha in Cape Town and Mitchell's Plain in Cape Town. Chris did something different. He went off on an official, well-organized program to work in a much more rural environment in South Africa. And his experiences about dealing with very unwell patients there, about having to improvise, about not having the sort of backup in terms of specialities or even basic equipment in which to treat the patients, I think is very interesting. It also makes me mindful of the fact that lots of people want to go abroad, but just sort of disappearing off for a short period of time, say a couple of weeks and just landing somewhere, doing something and then disappearing probably isn't the best thing to do. And we have a number of colleagues from Africa. It was a feature at the Badi M Fest conference that says that if you're going to go out and do that, doing it with an organization that can support you and put you into the local system so that you support it in an efficient way, which has some longevity is a really good thing to do. And that's certainly what Chris did. He also had an amazing time. He also learned a huge number of things and he's brought back a load of transferable skills. But I think if you're considering that kind of move, I'd, I'd read this blog and it will explain how to get the best out of a placement in somewhere like rural South Africa or somewhere else in Africa. Undoubtedly, people who are able to go abroad or to other units to see how things work can bring huge value to their home department. And I think it's something we should try and encourage. South Africa's clearly become a place which, if you do it right, can not only develop you as a clinician, but inform you as an individual and the people who tell their stories from when they worked across in South Africa you can only be inspired by them really it's something I wish I'd done to be absolutely honest right now do I think I'd be able to do it I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm physically capable of managing that right now part of me would love to take that challenge but I wish I'd done that 10 or 15 years ago and really been able to embrace the experiences that are possible now. I'm very impressed with the people who do it. Like you, I didn't get a chance to do it for various different reasons. But if you read Chris's thing, I think, you know, if, you, if you've if got the opportunity, go for it. But do it sensibly and do it wisely and do it safely. The last post of the month, Simon, was another of those journal club posts. Something that I think is close to all our hearts. Cardiac arrest, yet another dreadful pun. But whether or not pupil responses can predict outcome in cardiac arrest. We often talk about all sorts of ways of predicting outcome in cardiac arrest, whether that's end tidal CO2, the length of bystander CPR, whether there was any CPR at all. This was a paper looking at early pupil responses. Uh, what did they find? Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm sure you've been at cardiac arrest where somebody at the head end of the bed go, pupils are fixed, dilated. And the assumption then is that this is going to be a terrible outcome. 
And so what this study did is they looked at over 11,000 cardiac arrests in France. They have a very good database over there. So they record all of this information as they go along. It is a retrospective cohort, problems with that kind of design, but, you know, reasonable for this sort of study. And they looked at whether or not, whether the patient had a pupillary light reflex or reaction was predictive. And the bottom line is, yeah, I mean, if you've got no pupillary light reaction, it is not a great sign, to be absolutely honest. It's not something you want to see. But in terms of actually predicting a terrible outcome, it, it's not perfect, actually. Um, it's only got a sensitivity of 72% and a, a specificity of 68.8%. So whilst it's indicative, it's certainly not high enough for us to make any sort of significant clinical decision on just that. So with all these cases, so I think any patient in cardiac arrest, the outcome is not going to be that great. But it's still a question for me about when we stop resuscitation. I still find this an incredibly difficult decision. I still struggle with the what if we just keep going. There's some cases where it seems incredibly obvious, but there is also still a lot of grey in the middle there where I can't be sure that stopping is the right thing. And I do find this an incredibly tough choice to make. It is. And sometimes it will be very obvious and it'll be very clear that somebody is not going to survive or certainly not going to survive with a with anything that resembles a positive outcome. But we're increasingly hearing in the era of eCPR in some centres and in prolonged cardiac arrest that there can be some really remarkable survivors. So I do find this, the question hard, particularly in young people who've got no previous morbidity. And under those occasions, I'm quite happy to speak to my colleagues and use the team as a group and, if necessary, phone a friend and ask for help. Nothing to be ashamed of in doing that, so long as you feel comfortable and your team feels comfortable that the right decision was made because you don't want to be waking up at two o'clock in the morning and thinking about it again. And I think emergency physicians have always been the patient's advocate. And I do find myself sometimes putting that argument, not playing devil's advocate, but just saying, are you sure we should stop now? For me, there's a couple of specialties that find life a lot more binary and black and white. And I do actually think there's more gray in the things that we do. And I don't mind adopting that position as the emergency consultant. I think that's part of my job. I'd agree. So Simon, that's the blog post for March all covered. Is there anything else you wanted to chat about before we uh, finish? Not really. We've got some exciting things coming. We've got people from the St. Emelins team speaking at Retrieval up in Scotland in April, which should be great fun. We've got a whole variety of people setting up for the summer. We've got the conferences in October. We just want to see you there. So from St. Emelins, it's been great talking to you again. We're almost up to date now with our monthly updates. We'll be back again in May to tell you all about the posts from April. And there's hopefully some more podcasts on their way about other topics as well, which we hope you'll find useful. Really hoping to see some of you at St. Emelins Live in October. Don't forget all the details on the website. But for now, keep enjoying your emergency medicine. Take care of yourselves and your patients. And we'll see speak to you again soon. Have fun. Have fun.